Well, it's a wonderful blessing to be here in the house of the Lord again and uh, to preach, uh, have an opportunity and a privilege to preach in this church. It's always a privilege. Um, no, no, it's, okay. it's always a privilege to, um, to be able to, to preach in the house of the Lord and uh, I should never take that for granted. Um, before we start, can we just open with a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your wonderful blessings to us, Lord. We thank you that we could come here today freely, without let or hindrance, to come and hear from your word, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you would hide me behind your cross, and we pray that you would just let this message go out, Lord, and touch each and everyone's heart here today, Lord. Let them understand the reality of what has been said and what they need to do in their lives to fulfill what you have commanded us to do, Lord. We thank you again for this time and this opportunity. We pray that you bless the service, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> Many years ago, I remember watching a film on TV. Now, it's a very old film, so this is going to give my age away, maybe. <laughs> the movie was actually called uh, Pollyanna. Now, I'm not sure if many people remember that. And basically, it's a story with, uh, about an orphan girl. And in the story, there was a um, fire and brimstone preacher. And his name was Reverend Ford. And week after week, he would preach about hell and hellfire. And, and I actually went and looked at a bit of a transcript on, on the internet. And, oh, it uh, sounds very, very biblical. One Sunday, the little girl, Pollyanna, spoke to the Reverend and asked, asked him why he did not preach about rejoicing or happy texts. She pointed out that there were over 800 happy texts found in the Bible. Needless to say, the following week the Reverend preached a rejoicing and text message to the surprise of the whole congregation. Now I, I went back and, and, and looked at some of my sermons that I've preached in this church in particular. And um, yeah, many of them were very similar to <laughs> Reverend Ford. Um, and uh, yes, they tended to be more about um, health. And um, uh, Brother Eddie said to me, you know, man, I mentioned to him what I was going to preach about. And he said, oh, well, this will be the first time I don't have to put uh, uh, keep out on your messages. Because uh, previously we used to have um, CDs in the back. And um, one of the messages I, I, I preached was the eight realities of hell. And on the on the cover of that, uh, he preached. He pr he pr he printed out um, uh, "Keep Out" with a big no entry sign on it. <laughs> so, so the messages that I have been preaching in this church predominantly has been um, about eternity and hell. And um, so I thought I'd I'd, I'd preach something different uh, this month, and maybe go back to hell next month. <laughs> and. <laughs> Acts chapter 20, verse 27 says, well, I, have not, I, I, I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. So that's another important thing as well. So just to preach on one thing all the time uh, will cause you to miss out on some of the other counsels of God. So today I'm going to preach about love. Totally different topic. What is love? Now if I said the word love to you, or to any one of you here, it probably mean different things. You know, um, you know, the hu a husband might say, "I love my wife," or "I love golf." 
<laughs> I love my car or my new car or um, you know I, I, I might love something like my work I love my career but I mean is that a real true definition of what love is yeah. and, 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 and as we go through this message you'll really understand why I would like to focus on this topic of love in particular I have an old dictionary not as old as I'd like to have but I've got a 1951 Oxford Dictionary um, which is uh, gives a definition for love as the following warm affection attachment uh, liking or fondness paternal benevolence affectionate devotion so I looked at the Cambridge online Cambridge Dictionary it says to like another adult very much and be romantically and sexually attracted to them or to have strong feelings of, of liking a friend or a person in your family. Now, those, those, those definitions, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I said, okay, let's look at what the new Oxford Dictionary says, the online one. So the new online uh, Oxford Dictionary has the following definitions. It's got five points. It says, one, a strong feeling of affection. Mm -hmm. Second one is a great interest, uh, great interest and ple uh, pleasure in something. A person or thing that one loves. Zero score in sports. Yeah. Tennis. Tennis. Uh, feeling deep affection or sexual love for someone. Now looking at the definitions, does it really explain to us what love is? Now if I ask you the question, what is love? You know? now, now I'm going to ask a question. and I'd like you guys to respond. Say, what is stronger, love or hate? Can I have a vote? Okay. Number of people say love. Hands up. Okay. One, two, three, <laughs> four, five, six. Okay. How many people say hate? One, two. Okay. All right. I've got two, but I've got the majority that's saying, saying love. Okay. So what we'll do now is let's look at some examples in the Bible to try and explain and understand what love is and also what hate is. So let's go for it. Uh, the first example we're going to look at is uh, 2, 2 Samuel, chapter 13. Where are we? 2 Samuel. That's in the Old Testament. 2 Samuel, chapter 13. And we're going to look at verse 1. And we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 14. 2 Samuel, chapter 13, verse 1. Right. And it came to pass after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister, whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. And Amnon was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister, Tamar, for she was a virgin. And Amnon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was uh, Jonadab, the son of Shimeiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very subtle man. And he said unto him, Why art thou being a king's son, lean from day to day? Wilt thou not tell me? And Amnon said unto him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. And Jonadab said unto him, Lay thee down on thy bed, and make thyself sick. And when thy father cometh to see thee, say unto him, I pray thee, let my sister Tamar come and give me meat and dress the meat in my sight, that I may see it, and eat it at her hand. So Amnon laid down, and made himself sick. And when the king was come to see him, 
Amnon said unto the king, I pray thee, let Tamar my sister come, and make me a couple of cakes in my sight, that I may eat at her hand. And David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to thy brother Amnon's house, and dress him meat. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he lay down, and he was laid down. And she took flour and kneaded and made cakes in his sight, and did bake the cakes. And she took a pan and poured them out before him. But he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Have all men uh, from me. And they went out every man from him. And Amnon said unto, unto Tamar, Bring the meat into the chamber, that I may eat of thy hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made, and brought them into the chamber of Am, uh, to Amnon her brother. And when she had brought them unto him to eat, he took hold of her, and said unto her, Come, lie with me, my sister. And she said unto him, Nay, my, bro my brother, do not force me, for no such thing ought to be done in Israel. Do not thou this folly, and I, will, and, and I whither shall I cause my shame to go? And as for th thee, thou shalt be as one of the fools in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, speak unto the king, for he will not withhold me from thee. Howbeit, he would not hearken unto her voice, but being stronger than her, uh, stronger than she, forced her and laid with her. Let me ask you the question. Um, if we look at this example in the Bible, according to the online Oxford Dictionary, Amnon loved his sister Tamar. One, he had great strong feelings of affection for her. Two, he had great interest and pleasure in her. Three, he, she was a person that she loved. You know, if you look in verse one, it says that. And four, he had deep uh, felt feel, uh, affection for her. So if you had to look at that, and even if you look at verse one, it says that he loved her. But if I actually asked everyone here, from what we've just read, would you really say that this is a picture of love? No. I don't think anyone here would agree that this is a picture of love. Most people here would say that this is a picture of carnal lust and depravity. You know, even if we look at verse 2 in this here, it says, Amnon was vexed and he fell sick for his sister Tamar. For, you know, even look at verse 2, we see that the, 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 the lust that he had affected his physical health. If we look at verse 5 and 6, um, Jonadab said unto him, Lay thee down in thy bed, and make thyself sick. And when thy father cometh to see thee, say unto him, I pray thee, let my sister Tamar come and give me meat, and dress the meat for my, uh, in my sight, that I may see it and eat it. So Amnon lay down and made himself sick. We can see he set up a trap of deception to take advantage of, sister, of his sister, lying to his father, deceiving his father. He deceived his father, and eventually it led to, if you look in verse 14, that he raped his own sister. Is this a true reflection of, and depiction of love from the Bible? From the Oxford Dictionary, it does seem like it is. But we can see from the context that it is not. I asked you a question a little earlier. Um, 
which is stronger, love or hate? And the majority of you said, love is stronger. Um, but, and then some said, hate was stronger. Now the question I'll ask you is, why is love stronger? I would say love is stronger as well. Let's turn to 1 John, chapter 4. That's right near the back of the Bible. 1 John, chapter 4. And verse 8. 1 John chapter 4 verse 8. It says here, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. God is love. That's why love is stronger than hate. So who is the father of hate? Okay, let's turn to, just turn back a few chapters, uh, just a few pages to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 15. It says here, 1 John chapter 3, verses 15. Whoso hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Okay? From this verse we understand that someone who hates and has a, a deep hatred in their heart is a murderer. And scripture says that this person will never have eternal life abiding in themselves. So now we just go a little bit further and look a little bit deeper. Let's turn back to John chapter 8, verse 44. John chapter 8, verse 44. Okay, and this will give us a little bit clearer understanding of who the father of hate is and what hate is and where it comes from. John chapter 8, verse 44 says, Ye are of your father the devil. And the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. Clearly, the father and the author of hatred is the devil. So let's go back to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 13 again. 2 Samuel chapter 13 again. Back to the same spot that we were. We're just going to read a little bit further on. 2 Samuel chapter 13 verse 15. And we'll go to verse 17. Alright. And Amnon hated her exceedingly. So that the hatred wherewith he hated her was greater than the love wherewith he had loved her. And Amnon said unto her, Arise, be gone. And she said unto him, There is no cause. This evil in sending me away is greater than the other that thou didst unto me. But he would not hearken unto her. Then he called his servants that ministered unto him, and said, Put now this woman out from me, and bolt the door after her. Here we see the true colors of Amnon. In verse 15, after he had raped his sister, he hated her more than he had loved her. Was that love? No, it wasn't. Was that a picture of God? No. I think not. It's a picture 
of carnal desire, lust. And it has the fingerprints of the devil through the whole story. The deception, the lies, as we read in, in John chapter 8. The hatred, murder. Well, let's look at another passage. We're going to go to Luke chapter 15. This will give us a, a better idea of what love is, as opposed to the one that shows us what love is not. We're going to look at uh, Luke chapter 15 from verses, one, uh, verses 11, 24. Luke chapter 15, verses 11. And he said, A certain man had two sons. And the young of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided them unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and he joined himself unto a citizen of that country. And he sent him into the, his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swines did eat. And no man gave unto him. And when he had come to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to, and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will rise and go to my father. And will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him, and had compassion, and ran, and fell on his neck, and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in thy sight, and I am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said, to his servants, uh, bring forth the best robe, and put on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat, and be merry. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found, and they began to be merry. This passage is known as the, uh, the parable of the prodigal son, and normally sermons are preached on this. Um, passage about being lost and, and how people get saved. But I want to look at another little different aspect on this parable. From this parable that we see here, we can ask the question, did the son love the father? The younger son love the father? No. Clearly, if we look at verse, uh, verse one, uh, 11 and 12, the younger son asked for the inheritance, and very, very soon after he got the inheritance, he departed. He left the father. The son did not love the father. The younger son did not love the father. Else he would have asked for his, he would not have asked for the inheritance, and he would have not have departed that quickly. Now, did the did the, the next question? Did the younger son love his father after coming to his senses? No, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't love the father after he came to his senses. If you look at verse 17, and 19, uh, 17 to 19, and when he came to, uh, to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father have enough 
bread enough to, and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as, um, as one of thy hired servants. No, this is not a description. Uh, this, uh, this is in his desperation to preserve his own life. He was looking uh, to fall on the mercy of his father. Now the question you've got to ask yourself is why? Why would he be willing to fall on the mercy of his father? Because he knew his father loved him. He knew his father loved him. Look at verse 20. And he arose and he came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion on him and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. We see here that while he was a far way off, his father saw him. The father loved the son so much that he watched daily, daily, looking for his son to return. The father ran to the son. The son didn't run to the father. The son had, had not loved him. The son had rejected him. The son had um, spent half the fortune on prostitutes and riotous living. But that did not matter to the father because he had loved the son. Now, now this example that we see here, if I ask you this example, does this show us or give us a better, clearer indication of what love is? So this example does give us a clearer indication of what love is. Now, my, 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 the reason why I'm talking about love and why I'm preaching on love is, why is this important? Why is love important? Why am I giving the sermon on love? Well, let's turn to Matthew chapter 22. Just a few pages back. <coughs> Matthew chapter 22. And um, <coughs> we're going to read from verse, where are we? 34. Matthew 22 verse 34 to 40. And when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question. I was just going to say something about lawyers, but that's okay. <laughs> then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart with all, and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and your mind. And the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. These two commandments fulfill the law. So, to truly have an ability to fulfill these commandments, one has to have a good understanding of what love is. Now, I found another definition um, from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, which gives us a little bit better definition on, on what love is. It says here, 
Love, whether used of God or man, is an earnest and anxious desire for an active beneficent interest in the well-being of the one loved. It also goes on to talk about uh, God and says, He, talking about God, who is love and from whom all love is derived, the love of God is that part of his nature, indeed his whole nature, for God is love. We read that in 1 John 4, 8. Which leads him to express himself in terms of endearments towards his creatures and actively to manifest that interest and affection in acts of loving care and self-sacrifice in, well, in behalf of the object of his love. So, what does this mean? True love is more than just saying, I love you. You see that many times in movies. You see many people just say, I love you, I love you, I love you. But, you know, is that really truly love? If a boy says to a girl, I love you, but he's not willing to marry her, then does he really love her? He may be infatuated with her, there may be warm affections and feelings for her. But if he's not willing to marry and commit to her, it cannot be love. The same goes for the girl. So just don't think it's just the guy's <laughs> From this definition from the International Bible, uh, International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, love looks out, looks out actively for the best interest. Of the one being loved. It involves loving care. involves self-sacrifice. To the one being loved. True love requires action. And self-sacrifice. Love is not a feeling. Love is not only words. It requires action. Love is just not saying I love you. But there is no action behind it. Turn to a famous verse in John chapter 3. <laughs> the best example of true love can be shown in this one verse. John chapter 3, verse 16. It says here, For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What do we read here? For God so loved the world. God loves every single person on this earth. The Bible tells us, tells us it. But did the verse stop there? God loved the world. That God so loved the world. No, it didn't. Because love, God loves you and me. He took action to display His love. He knew man was fallen and sinful and wallowing in the sin and could not save themselves. What did he do to display his love? What did he do? He gave his only begotten son as a sacrifice. God gave his most precious possession, his son, Jesus Christ, for our benefit and for our best interest. Not for his. He didn't need to do anything. He could have let every single one of us go into hell. But no, he didn't. 
This was the ultimate display of loving care. This was the ultimate display of self-sacrifice. Jesus went to the cross willingly. Willingly. He was not, he was not going to kicking and screaming like we do. He willingly went there. He went to sacrifice himself, the perfect, innocent Lamb of God, for sin for you and for sin for me. He, don't, he, did, not to be, he did not deserve his sacrifice. He did not deserve to be on that cross. But because he loved us, he went there. He went to the cross for us. So, so how do you fulfill the greatest commandment from Matthew chapter 22? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind and strength. How do you fulfill that? Well, first thing you've got to realize is that you're a sinner and that you're separated from God. And that everything that you do, the Bible tells you that for the wicked, their working is sin. Any work that they do, the plowing of the wicked is sin. So how can you even love God if you're not saved? So what you've got to realize is that you're a sinner, separated from God. Just like the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15 we read. You have joined yourself to the devil. And you're being fed with scraps. Scraps fit for the pigs. Let's just go look quickly back at Luke 15, uh, where we were at the prodigal son. I'm going to read verse 13 to 16. Luke 15. Luke 15 says, And not many days after... Uh, Luke 15, verse 13. And not many days after, the, the younger son gathered his... He, oh, oh, hang on. Yeah. And not many days after... The younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a, fair, a far country and wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want, and went and joined himself to a citizen of the country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine, and he would fain have spoiled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. We see the younger son lived a life of riotous living. And there's been many of us that may have, have lived that life, that lifestyle. Everyone on earth is doing the same thing as a younger son. Chasing after the world. Having riotous living. You do not have to um, go to prostitutes. You don't have to go to um, have drugs and all that to live riotous living. You can do that in your heart. You could lust after people. You could... Um, desire earnestly and covet people you could uh, people's goods and things that's the same in god's eyes what's in your heart is the same as if you physically did it jesus said that in, in scripture as well chasing after this world the things of this world and belonging to satan if you're not a child of god you're a child of satan sinning against god and rejecting him because of this you are like the younger son longing for the husks of, of that, that he fed, fed the pigs. And what is husk? Husk is the outer covering of the, sea, of the, of the pod. It's empty. The empty promise that the devil has given to you, which cannot fill you. 
which cannot satisfy you, which leaves you destitute, leaves you spiritually starved, malnourished. In verse 17 we see that, And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father have bread enough to, and to spare, and I perish with hunger? When the younger, younger son realized his true situation, that he needed a saviour, that he turned from the foreign country and returned to his father. Everyone who's not saved is like this, like this younger son. Until they realize that they need God, they need Jesus Christ, to truly love God and fulfill the greatest commandment, you need to, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You need to repent. You need to turn away from your life of sin, which is repentance, and come to Jesus. Submit to Him. You need to self-sacrifice your will for God's will, which is then love towards God. Only when you have repented of your sin and accepted God's offering of salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect lamb that was slain for the sin of the world, then and only then can you love God with all your heart, soul and mind. Only then. Only when you're born again as a child of God, He, can put, he puts His Spirit into your heart. Only then can you truly love. Because... We read earlier, God is love. An unbeliever cannot truly love anyone fully. Why is that? Because they have the spirit of man dwelling in them. And man is inherently selfish. Every single one of you here, even including myself, don't, don't think I'm, I'm above you guys. If I had to look at my life and look at myself as a, as a person living on this earth, I'm inherently selfish. I will want my way as opposed to someone else's way. We all are. Unless you have the Spirit of God in you and He guides you, you will always be inherently selfish. So you can never truly love someone. Only a born again believer can truly love someone because of the Spirit of God. Now why do I say that? Let's turn to uh, uh, as many whys in here. Should should also do the what's, where, when. <laughs> but anyway, today's wise sermon. We'll go to John chapter twelve. <clears throat> John chapter twelve. And we're gonna go look at verse forty nine. John chapter twelve, verse forty nine. Okay. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me. He gave me a commandment that I, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that, this, that His commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. So we see here that Jesus declares that He speaks from the Father. And that Jesus, uh, the Father commands Jesus to say, do something, Jesus does it. When the Father commands Jesus to say something, Jesus does it. So if you just go back to, uh, just go a little bit forward on the same chapter, John 13, and we're going to read verse 34 and 35 and see what it says there. See, verse it says here, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, and that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if you have loved one to another. 
Jesus' commandment from the Father is that we love one another as He loved them. He repeats it twice in verse 34. Not once, twice. Verse 35 is also very important. It says that by this love that we have one for another, we show to unbelievers that we are true followers of Jesus Christ. That's the mark. That's a sign of a believer. Love. The love that we have here one for another. This love that we have is also includes our neighbors. It also, the, when we have that love one for another and for our neighbors, it is, fulfills the second great commandment that Jesus said. That fulfills all the law. We need to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And if we really investigate our own hearts, we know how much we love ourselves. You've just got to really think about it and meditate on that. Turn to 1 John chapter 4. One John chapter four. I'm going to read verse seven to twenty-one. This is a real good summary of what what I've been talking about. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifest the love of God towards us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, if we love one another God dwelleth in us. And his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he hath given us of his Spirit. And we have seen, and do testify, that the Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. Whoso shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect, perfect love casts out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If man... If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he, he that loveth not his brother, whom he hath seen, how can he say he love God, whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loveth God, love his brother also. This whole section here summarizes what I've just said previously. If there's no love in your life, have a look at yourself and see, are you saved? If you are saved and there's still no love in your life,
Then you need to look at your Christian walk. You need to look at your relationship with God. If you are being obedient to Him, then love will result. Love will flow out. If you're being disobedient, well then my, my suggestion to you is that you repent and get right with God before He chastises you and bring you back in line. Now, this last part of the sermon, I want to just go about some examples or some um, suggestions um, on loving action in, in, in everyday life. Now, the advice to new parents and parents with young children is from the world is don't discipline your children. Just let them do whatever they want. Just give them whatever they need. But, God, from time to time, disciplines His children if they go along the wrong path. He brings them back to the correct path. The world tells us, don't discipline. But the Bible says, we have to discipline our children. Just as God disciplines believers who are straying along the way. Turn to Proverbs 13. I want to go through some of this why we discipline children. It's really important. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 24. Proverbs 13 verse 24 says, He that spareth his rod hateth his son. But he that loveth him chastise him betimes. This verse tells us that if you don't discipline children, you actually hate them. You hate them. But if you do discipline them when they need to be disciplined, then you love them. Now, why, why would the Bible say that? Just turn a little bit over to Proverbs 22. And you're going to read verse 6. It says here, <clears throat> Proverbs 22 verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Your disciplining of your child is to train the child to walk along the correct path. Turn to Proverbs 23, just one page over, verse, 14, uh, verse 13 to 14. It says here, With not hold correction from the child, if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. Thou shalt beat him with the rod, and shall deliver his soul from hell. You disciplining your child so that you would save him from a life of misery. Now if you look at children that live a life of misery where they go into drugs, alcohol, it's not a pleasant life. But even if you look at here, a, sm a small hiding on the bottom is a small price from an etern eternal, eternal perspective of your child going to hell. You're trying to correct their lives so that they live a decent life, a healthy life, and a life that will also lead to their salvation as opposed to going to hell. How would it be to just let your child go wildly and ignore them so that they'll spend eternity in hell and you'll be in heaven? How is that? What would that be on your heart? What that would, how would that feel to you? That's on, 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 on just a little on, on children. 
What about husbands and wives? Oh, this is this is a real interesting one. Um, turn to Ephesians chapter five. Ah, uh, Ephesians chapter five. Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to look at verse 22. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your husband as unto the as husbands, unto, as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as a child, as children is the head of uh, as, even as Christ is head of the church, and he is saviour of the body. Therefore, as a church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be subject. Uh, let the so let the wives be to their own husband in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it, that He might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that He might present to it to Himself, uh, pre present it to Himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that he should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever hath hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as a Lord, the church. Verse 22 to 24 tells wives to submit to their husbands in everything. Now some husbands may say, see, the wife must submit everything to everything. Now, in everything, and it does say in everything. And if the wife loves the husband, she should submit to him. But, she has the easy part. She has the easy part. Now sometimes husbands forget and they just read down to verse 24, but they don't read further. The wife has the easier part in this relationship, in this situation of love. Husbands are to love their wives as they love themselves. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. A wife is not commanded to love her husband in her submission. If you read there, not required. And in many cases and cultures, they are wives that submit to their husbands without love. So the wife doesn't have to love the husband, but has to submit to him. To submit to him. But this is a definition that I came up of love. All right, it still needs some work. But if you if you if you listen to this definition of love, it puts a very high bar on. On, on what husbands have to do. Love is a self-sacrificing of your own will, of your own desires, of your own wants, of your own feelings, of your own self, and of your own thoughts to desire and actively bring forth the best interest, affection, and loving, of the, uh, loving care of the person being loved. If you look at that definition, who has the easier job? To submit or to love?
Husbands, if you love your, your life, your wife like that, will she not willingly submit? I've got something interesting which I, which I found just last night. It says, um, this is a quote from C.S. Lewis. Okay. Which puts an even higher standard on love. The husband is the head of the wife. Just insofar as he is to her what Christ is to the church. He is to love her as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. Ephesians 5.25 This headship then is most fully embodied not in the husband we should, we should all wish to be but in him whose marriage is most like a crucifixion. whose wife receives most and gives least, is most unworthy of him, is in her own mere nature least lovable. For the church has no beauty, but what the bridegroom gives her, he does not find, but makes her lovely. Think about that. Husbands, when your life is like a crucifixion, like Christ on the cross and you still love your wife that's a picture of love so what if what, what if the husband or the wife in the relationship is not saved how do you how do you how do you deal with that 1 Corinthians turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 <clears throat> One Corinthians chapter seven, verses ten to sixteen, and it says, "And unto the, the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband, but if she depart, let her remain unmarried and be reconciled, uh, or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife, but to the the rest speak I, not the Lord, if." Any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she is pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath a husband that believeth not, if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. Uh, uh, um but if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God hath called us to peace. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? Now for an unbelieving wife, uh, sorry, for a believing wife and an unbelieving husband, when a, de a decision arises, to be made and, and the wife may not agree with the husband what she should, a suggestion would be is she would tell she should tell him she does not agree with the decision of what's going to be made but she should submit to him but she should, what she should do is she say to him look I don't quite agree with what you're doing but what I'll do is I'm going to submit to you because why I'm being obedient to Christ the Bible tells me that I need to submit to you 
And what I'm going to do is I'm going to submit to your decision because Christ said I need to submit to you. And I will leave it into God's hand because I'm being obedient to Him. Because I love Jesus Christ. That's why I'm going to submit to you. And leave it in, and then leave it in God's hand to sort it out. What the wife is here is doing here is the wife has the ability by submitting to the husband to show the love of Christ that works through her. And the test of a testimony that she's giving of telling him about her decision and telling him that she's going to be obedient to Christ is a witness to the husband. And this love that she shows shows that she loves Jesus Christ and she loves him. And if you leave it into the Lord's hands, the Lord will be faithful and respond to that, what she's done. What about a believing husband and an unbelieving wife? Now, a wife might be working, might be doing things differently according to Scripture. She might be acting out of scope with God's will. Word. What the husband can do in this situation would be to approach the unbelieving wife and tell her that he does not agree with her actions, and then maybe read scripture from read scripture, Ephesians five twenty three, which we read just earlier, which says that the wife, I mean the husband, is the head of the of the house and head of the wife. He can also tell her that the Bible tells the husband to love his wife, as Christ loved the church, and that you want to be obedient to Christ, referring always back to Christ, and that you love her as, 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 as your wife. Even if she rejects you, just as Christ loved the world, and the world rejected Christ, and they despised Him, and they even murdered Him. You can tell her, you will leave it with, in, in God's hands, and, in, and, and God will deal with the issue. The benefit again here is that the, in the discussion is that you're showing the unbelieving wife your obedience to the Bible and your obedience to Christ. You're testifying for Christ and, and, and giving a witness of why you do things. Right? Not for your own benefit, not trying to whatever, but you're saying giving uh, God the glory and that you love her. You also tell her that you love her. And really, when you tell her that you love her, you need to act on it. You can't just say, I, look, I love you. That doesn't mean anything. All right? When you declare your love to her, you need to show that you lo love her with action. Now, we, we, you remember what I read uh, C.S. Lewis's um, quote? Well, that applies to you here as well. Probably even more so. If you turn to uh, 1, John, uh, 1 John chapter 3. Uh, just 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 16 to verse 18. It says here, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this word, uh, will, will's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion for him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, 
but in deed and in truth. So, that just gives you an idea on that. Well, I'll go, I think, one more example, or maybe two, which I would like to bring up. What if, you, you, if someone is your enemy? What about that? Who hates you, or even someone may have dented your car, decided to kick in the door of your car. If you know who did it, all right, you can approach them and tell them that you forgive them. Now, when you forgive them, you really forgive them, okay? Don't say, oh, look, I'm going to hold a grudge. Just really forgive them, all right? You've got to realize that unbelievers, people do things really, really dumbly because they don't understand the, 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 the true repercussions of all their actions. But forgive them and tell them, tell them that Jesus told you to love your enemies. Okay? And pray for their salvation. What you're doing there is you're telling them, look, I love, I, I, because I love you, because Christ loved me, I will forgive you for what you've done. Right? Now, if you don't know who it is, you know, sometimes you may come back to your car and you find a nice long scratch along the wall on your, on your car. What you should do then, well, it's a recommendation, is that you should forgive them in your heart and pray for them, for their salvation. Now every time, don't get that scratch fixed. Leave it. <coughs> every time you see that scratch, pray for their salvation. Every time you see that scratch fixed, pray for their salvation. When you do that, you are expressing, you are portraying love. No one sees it. God does. And God will bring that person to salvation at some, at some point in time. Not, you don't have to worry about those things. So, you know, every time that you see any, anything that happens in your life, someone might do something bad against you. You can always use an opportunity to express your love that resides in you as a believer. Now, what if you're preaching in the streets and you have people come up and curse you in front of you being very aggressive, blessing the name of our Lord. Right? Turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're, nearly, we're near the end. Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to read from verse 43 to 48. Matthew 5.43 You have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. For if we love them which love you, and reward them, um, and what reward have you, ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Those guys and those people that blaspheme you, that blaspheme the name of the, our Lord, 
You need to love those people. You need to love them. What you can do, which most people, which, which, which is our normal human reaction, is to be confrontational and say, you are going to hell for what you've just done or what you're doing. You know? and, and it is true. They are going to hell. That's, that's definitely true. You know, when they blaspheme the name of our Lord and things like that, they're going to hell. But you could do it differently. You could portray the love that resides in you through Christ. You could say that. Uh, you could say. Um, uh, wait, wait. You, what you could do is you could show the love of Christ by saying that Christ died for you, and I'm going to pray for you that that, that God will save you and open your eyes so that you may see and pray aloud. Pray aloud for them. Pray aloud to the, the, for them and say, Look, Lord God, please save this man. Open his eyes. Let him see what he's doing is going along, along the wrong path. Pray for that guy aloud, or that woman aloud, or that person aloud. Right in front of him. Let God answer that prayer. Ask them to, um, uh, to take away the blindness of their eyes. Ask God to save them. Verse 44 says here, if you read, where were we? Verse 44 says, um, But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Does it say they curse them with it, that, 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 um, that curse you? No, it says bless them. It says, do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that despisefully use you and persecute you. Pray for them. It's not normal human nature to do that. But if the love of Christ is in you, you will pray for them there. Why don't you do that? Ask them, bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that despisefully use you and persecute you. This will show the love of God that is in you for them. When you do that, they can see, an unbeliever can see that you are a child of Christ. You are different to all the other people that they've come across. Who would pray for the enemy? It's not natural. It's not normal. Normal, normal human nature is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's not pray for your enemy, feed your enemy, bless your enemy. And they will know that you are Jesus' disciple. And when the Lord works in their heart, they'll come back to you. Now these are some examples of showing love one for another. I wanted to end with uh, Romans 5, Romans 5, chapter 5, verse 8. <clears throat> this is a very famous um, piece of scripture as well. It says here, But God commendeth his love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then go to verse uh, John chapter 15, verse 13. John 15, verse 13. It says here, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. <clears throat> 
Jesus said in John chapter 15 verse 13 that a man dying for his friend is a greater love. But then imagine this and think about this. How much greater must Jesus' Christ's love for you and me be that he chose not to die for his friends but for his enemies? Each one over here was an enemy of, of, of Christ. And maybe some of us might die for a friend. But who would die for an enemy? Jesus Christ did. If you're not saved today and have not accepted Christ as your Savior, then you are an enemy of God. And John 3.16 we read earlier, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ's love was for you was so great that he died for you, an enemy. Jesus' love for you led him to the cross, where he died as a sacrifice for you, his enemy. Repent from your sin today and turn to Jesus and experience the true love and relationship with God. The love that Jesus had for me To suffer on the cruel tree That I a ransomed soul may be Is more than tongue can tell His love is more than tongue can tell His love is more than tongue can tell the love that Jesus had for me is more than tongue can tell. Amen. Brother Don.